Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with yesterday evening's execution by the FBI of a warrant signed by a federal judge from which apparently highly classified material was taken from Donald Trump's residence at Mar-a-Lago, including contents from his safe. Joining us to discuss what documents Trump might have taken with him from the White House that he wanted to keep secret is Peter Strzok, the former FBI Deputy Assistant Director of Counterintelligence and a 22-year veteran of the Bureau. He served as one of the original case agents for the Russian couple who inspired the TV series The Americans, and he has investigated a range of other high-profile cases from WikiLeaks to the 9-11 hijackings to Hillary Clinton's private email server. He was selected to head the FBI's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential campaign and work with Robert Mueller as a leader of the FBI's efforts in creating a special counsel's office. A veteran of the United States Army's 101st Airborne Division, he is the recipient of the FBI's highest investigative honor, the Director's Award for Excellence, and is the author of Compromised, Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump, now out in paperback. Then we'll examine the overheated response from Republican leaders like Kevin McCarthy, who threatened retaliation against Attorney General Garland, and speak with Lloyd Green, an attorney based in New York who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Department of Justice from 1990 to 1992. A contributing writer at The Guardian, where his latest article is Tuesday's Primaries, offer a glint of hope for Democrats this fall, we'll discuss how the party of law and order is now in complete submission to Trump's lawlessness. Then finally, we'll assess the fallout from the Alex Jones trial and speak with Anna Merlin, a journalist specializing in politics, crime, religion, subcultures, and women's lives, a senior staff writer at Vice Features. She was previously an investigative reporter for Gizmodo Media Group, a senior reporter at Jezebel and a staff writer at The Village Voice and The Dallas Observer. She's the author of Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists and Their Surprising Rise to Power, and we will discuss her latest article, Advice, Alex Jones and Infowars Must Pay Sandy Hook Parents More Than 45 Million Impunitive Damages Jury Fines. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our non-profit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Peter Strock, the former FBI Deputy Assistant Director of Counterintelligence and a 22-year veteran of the Bureau. He served as one of the original case agents for the Russian couple who inspired the TV series The Americans, and he's investigated a range of other high-profile cases from WikiLeaks to the 9-11 hijackings to Hillary Clinton's private email server. He was selected to head the FBI's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential campaign and work with Robert Mueller as the leader of the FBI's efforts in creating the special counsel's office. Also a veteran of the U.S. Army's 101st Airborne Division, he is the recipient of the FBI's highest investigative honor, the Director's Award for Excellence, and he is the author of Compromised, Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump, now out in paperback. Welcome to Background Briefing, Peter Strzok. Ian, thank you. It's great to be here with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Peter. And the FBI exercised a warrant signed by a federal judge last evening, and apparently they were looking for highly classified material that's been taken by Donald Trump to his residence, from the White House, to his residence at Mar-a-Lago, including contents from his safe. So... To my mind, and you coming out of counterintelligence, uh, the perfect person to ask this question, would Donald Trump take anything from the White House that wasn't really 
secret or something that he didn't want anybody to know about? I mean, this is not just a former president wanting to write his memoirs. I mean, after all, President Nixon installed the taping system in the White House that was his undoing because he wanted to write his memoirs. That's not in character with Trump. So my suspicions suggest that what he's be squirreled away is pretty top secret stuff. It, it certainly appears from the reporting that there was very highly classified material, both in the documents that were recovered by the National Archives last year, as well as from some recent reporting, what may still be there. So it's what, what's particularly interesting to me is, you know, I absolutely agree with you. He did not want a, a very detailed roadmap of his plan for Middle Eastern peace that he could sit down and write, you know, volume three of his memoirs talking about that that process in great detail. It's very interesting to me, and we may never know, at least not in our lives, what those documents actually were, but what caused him to be interested in them and what were they? Because something drove his curiosity. I, I don't think it was simply a function of being a pack rat that everything that was classified that crossed his desk, he, he shoved in a box somewhere in the residence. I think there was something that caused these things to be maintained. I don't know that it was out of a sense of, you know, future duty to the national security of the United States and statecraft. So I have a, a simultaneous deep curiosity and a sinking feeling that I may never know, we may never know precisely what those documents are. Well, why do you say that, though, Peter Strzok, if they're now in the hands of the FBI and the Justice Department and... If indeed, for example, could they be the secret notes from Trump's meetings with Putin that he grabbed from the translator and held on to? And, <laughs> you know, I mean, could it be something yeah. like that? I, absolutely. I think it's, it's a Rorschach test of, of everything people remember that it, and what it might be. Uh, it, it certainly could be that. I remember at some point there was reporting, I think it was in the context of a congressional request to the National Archives, first, hey, will you give us this material that you recovered that's classified? And the National Archives came back and said, sorry, we can't. It's it's too classified and for whatever reasons they gave. And Congress said, fine, will you at least just give us a list, a table of contents of things that were provided? And my recollection is that the National Archives said, that list in and of itself is too classified to give to you. Now, in the context of things that cross a president's desk, in my experience, that could very well be a true statement, which then, based on that, because of the level of typically sensitivity of the intelligence, which is given to a president, might very well retain its classification for generations. I mean, there are still things from the the 60s and the 70s that remain classified to this day. So in the context of something at the high end of sensitivity of classification given to a president, it is not unreasonable in my mind that the government might claim those things to be classified well into the future. And by well into the future, I'm talking 50 plus years. So isn't there also another issue here in terms of chain of custody, that these highly classified documents, and apparently there are several boxes of them, we don't know where they were stored in uh, Mar-a-Lago and under what conditions. We know that Trump hosts all kinds of people uh, coming in. That, you know, As long as you pay the entrance fee of 250000 whatever it is, you can get membership there. And, you know, it's possible <laughs> that... A wealthy Russian could, uh, working for the FSB, could pony up the money. So are you concerned about the, the chain of custody? I mean, what kind of conditions under which these documents were stored? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, the fact is this is not, you know, sometimes perhaps a former senior government executive had a, a, a in their residence, a space that was certified for handling and maintaining classified information and this isn't the kind of thing where there's a safe in there that didn't get adequately emptied that, you know, kind of stayed there. This is in the context of Mar-a-Lago. 
where there are two broad categories of things that concern me. First is Trump's occasional predilection, apparently, to show off. And that whether it's, you know, I'm thinking back to, I think it was Prime Minister Abe, where he had brought out classified information, I think the reporting was relating to something in North Korea, and was sharing it with Abe, not in the Situation Room of the White House, but on the balcony of Mar-a-Lago with all these people crowded around. And so the prospect that Trump, because he thought something was neat or cool or interesting, that he wanted to brag about how he had funded, that he might, on a whim, pull that out of a box to show patrons of Mar-a-Lago, I think is a real threat. And then, of course, you spoke to what I considered the second, perhaps more significant threat. Any president or former president is going to be a significant target of any foreign intelligence service, and particularly hostile ones put a great deal of effort and resources into getting close to them. So to the extent this is stored at Mar-a-Lago, who, as you pointed out, has membership, it also has staff, whether they are cooks or cleaners or electricians or people who bring in the food and vegetables and meats and come in to repair the phone lines. To the extent that all that host of people has physical access to Mar-a-Lago, how well are they being screened and vetted? I'm certain Secret Service does probably an excellent job of making sure they don't have a gun or a knife. I'm not so certain that the Secret Service takes this electrician called in to repair the elevator and does a deep dive into their background to ensure they are in fact who they claim to be and not in fact a Cuban illegal living here undercover whose main job is to try and penetrate Mar-a-Lago and find precisely things like this stored in a box somewhere unattended. And again, I'm speaking with Peter Strzok, the former FBI Deputy Assistant Director of Counterintelligence and a 22-year veteran of the Bureau in 2016, he was selected to head the FBI's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 campaign and is the author of Compromised Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump. So is there a couple of scenarios here in terms of what the Justice Department might be up to? In other words, if they, as Trump himself said, they broke into his safe, if there's some serious smoking guns above and beyond the investigations that are going on now, for example, something that might relate to Trump's very opaque relationship with Putin, which I mentioned earlier, the, the notes of the, the secret notes of the meetings that he grabbed, etc. Is there a possibility that there is something really quite explosive in, in this cache of documents? On the other hand, in uh, his column in the Los Angeles Times, former Justice Department official Harry Littman is arguing that even the mishandling or destroying of official documents is no petty offense, uh, not under the federal code, which provides a prison sentence for up to three years for anyone who willfully or unlawfully conceals, removes, mutilates, obliterates, falsifies, or destroys official documents. And anybody who does so shall be disqualified and barred from life from holding future office. So he's speculating that the DOJ could agree to a modest jail sentence, or perhaps none at all, and decline to pursue the laundry list of other charges that the January 6th committee and the DOJ are apparently working on. And Trump, in turn, could agree not to challenge the disqualification provision. So what do you think of that scenario? Well, you know, I, I, I know Harry a little bit. He's a, he's a bright attorney, and I, I respect him, but I, I disagree here. I can't. I mean, first looking at that statute, some analysis, because certain conservative attorneys brought that out in the context when we were investigating Hillary Clinton to try and disqualify her, right? Oh, see, there's there's uh, unauthorized retention of classified information or placement on these unauthorized systems. Therefore, we want to charge her with that to disqualify her. And some analysis by attorneys, I think, rather soundly arrived at the conclusion that that statute is perhaps unconstitutional because as the Constitution sets forth the eligibility for who may or may not be a president, it does not envision conveying that power to Congress. In other words, the Constitution does not grant Congress the ability to pass laws about who may or may not run for president, is, is the legal argument. So I think there are some constitutional issues with whether or not that particular statute could be used in an effort to bar Trump from seeking reelection. 
and from a broader perspective, though, I think this particular issue, do you, if you're going to charge for the first time in the United States history, a former president with a crime, are you going to do it in the context of, again, unauthorized retention, mishandling of classified information is a felony offense. It can lead to jail time. But in the context of somebody who wasn't a lieutenant colonel in the army, somebody who wasn't a mid-level worker at the Central Intelligence Agency, but rather somebody who was the president of the United States, who was the classification authority of the United States, right? The presidents, presidents are the one who determine what is and isn't classified, and that power trickles down many levels. But at the end of the day, the ultimate classification authority is the chief executive of the United States. And that is also, therefore, the ultimate authority to declassify anything and everything. That is, that is a presidential power that is not shared at all with Congress, that is not shared at all with the courts. So there are some, I mean, we can get into a lot of discussion about this, that Trump was so particularly sloppy in terms of tweets that he had declassified something or a statement that he was going to declassify something that many people, smart attorneys, took made lawsuits and took legal action to try and say, oh, hey, Trump just tweeted, he declassified all this, please give me a copy, and forced the Department of Justice and the White House Counsel's Office to say, well, that's just him blustering, unless it's backed up with a written declassification order, it isn't really declassified. But that getting into that sort of gray area were Trump's attorneys to claim if charges were brought, Trump, before he left the White House, declassified everything he put in those boxes, is a reasonable defense. It may be complete nonsense, it may be transparently false, but it is not an unreasonable legal defense. So in the context of if you are going to charge this prolific, in my opinion, violator of law in a way that nobody in his position has ever in our nation's history had happen, is this the charge you want? Or is there a better charge in the context of winning participation in state after state after state of bogus electors, in the context of pressuring the state of Georgia to find additional votes, in the context of understanding and inciting a mob to of insurrectionists to descend on the Capitol? I think there are much more, if you are going to charge Trump, crimes that fit the sort of nature of his, again, in my opinion, unlawful activity, rather than this you know, we got Al Capone by cheating on his taxes. That's that's not what we want to do, in my opinion, if we're going to choose to charge a president of the United States, a former president of the United States. So, Peter Strzok, when you talk about crimes, isn't that a predicate in terms of a judge signing off on a search warrant, in this case, a federal judge? Isn't it necessary or is it a part of the process that there either has to be a crime involved or at least the suspicion of a crime? Oh, it's absolutely true. So a search warrant is not something the executive branch, that is not something the DOJ or the FBI can get on their own. A search warrant has to, must, excuse me, by law demonstrate, one, to a judge within the judicial branch that there's probable cause, that there's evidence of a crime that exists now, reasonably exists now in the place to be searched in the form of a bunch of facts laid out in an affidavit that satisfies that judge to issue that warrant. So it is a it is a significant standard. It is a higher standard than more likely than not. It is a far, far higher standard than something you would need to get a subpoena. It is something that you need two branches of the three of the United States uh, government to obtain. So it is, at the end of the day, a neutral independent judge has found probable cause to believe that there's evidence of a crime at Mar-a-Lago now or at the time of the execution of the warrant. Because that's a, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. That a, a former president of the United States, a judge said, there's probable cause that I believe right now, based on this sworn statement, that there's evidence of a crime right there in the president, former president's house as we speak. And... By this warrant, I give you, armed agents of the FBI, the authority to go in without the consent of that former president into his residence and seize 
that evidence. It's a big deal. Well, just in closing, since uh, Peter Strzok, since you led the investigation into Hillary Clinton's private email server, there was a lot of hyperventilating and hyperbole from Trump and many other uh, officials at the time in 2016 about how terrible Hillary Clinton abuse of uh, classified materials was. What's the comparison to what we're talking about now? Well, I think that the, the most the most immediate comparison to me is the the response of the members of the Republican Party. I mean, there has been in the past 24 hours such a an outcry of outrage and how dare they? And this is the third world banana republic type behavior. Yet, during that investigation of Hillary Clinton, we obtained and served multiple search warrants for classified information. And not one Republican raised the slightest bit of objection to that. And if you watch carefully now, not a, I am willing to bet you not one Republican will raise any issue with the fact that that was done. The point is, of course, that there is no person in the United States above the law. And the fact that we're seeing an entire political party seemingly pushing back against that is, I mean, it doesn't surprise me. It discourages me. But, you know, the, the, the underlying message that this occurred, I think, is one of hope that we are all equal, that we do not have a monarchy, that nobody is above the law. And so, you know, we'll see where it goes. And, you know, I, I, I worry that Trump will use this to re-energize his fundraising, to unite his support behind him, and that he'll do that in a way that's deeply unhealthy for our democracy. Well, Peter Strzok, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Peter Strzok, who's a former FBI Deputy Assistant Director of Counterintelligence and a 22-year veteran of the Bureau. He served as one of the original case agents for the Russian couple who inspired the TV series The Americans, and he investigated a range of other high-profile cases from WikiLeaks to the 9-11 hijackings to Hillary Clinton's private email server, and he was selected to head the FBI's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential campaign and work with Robert Mueller as the head of the FBI's efforts in creating the Special Counsel's Office. And he's also a veteran of the United States Army's 101st Airborne Division and the recipient of the FBI's highest investigative honor, the Director's Award for Excellence. And he's the author of Compromised Counterintelligence and the Threat of Donald J. Trump, now out in paperback. We're going to take a brief station break back examining the overheated response from Republican lawmakers like Kevin McCarthy, who threatened retaliation against Attorney General Garland for the FBI's raid on Mar-a-Lago last evening. The day is near. The day is coming. You know what I mean. The day is coming. The way is clear. The day has come. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Lloyd Green, an attorney based in New York, who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Department of Justice from 1990 to 1992. He's a contributing writer at The Guardian, where his latest article is, Tuesday's primaries offered a glint of hope for Democrats this fall. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lloyd Green. Thank you. Good to join you, Ann. Well, thanks for joining us, Lloyd. And, you know, as a recovering Republican, or however you want to describe yourself, what is happening to the Republican Party, highlighted by the hysterical reaction to the raid uh, by the FBI on Trump's Mar-a-Lago estate, which was, of course, approved by a federal judge? There's obviously a criminal matter that had to be addressed. Uh, The judge assessed it so. The FBI showed up. And I must have, I don't know where they had a tip off of where to find all this stuff, but apparently there are boxes and boxes of classified material, some of it classified at the highest level. And they also, according to Trump, broke into his safe. 
But the reaction from the Republicans, uh, like Kevin McCarthy and others, have been quite hysterical. So what is happening to the party of law and order? Well, what's happened is the GOP has become the party of Donald Trump. And to the extent that Donald Trump appears to be under a microscope or perceives himself as being under attack or as the subject of a search warrant, the party, at least the congressional Republicans, will fall in behind him. And the chances are, the very good chances are, that the House GOP is very much in sync with the GOP's base. That having been said, it's interesting to catch the quiet that is coming from a good chunk of the Republican Senate leadership. Um, as far as I know, Mitch McConnell hasn't said anything. Tim Scott of South Carolina has taken a more wait and see attitude to what occurred. Chris Christie expressed his belief that what occurred is at least understandable. But at the end of the day, Donald Trump out of office continues to have a great deal of sway over the Republican Party. You saw Kevin McCarthy run down to Mar-a-Lago um, at the end of January 2021, um, even after the insurrection, even after Kevin McCarthy was calling Jared Kushner in a panic, which tells you that Donald Trump remains the most central figure within the Republican Party. Well, just to add to the list of the of the contrast, Lloyd, between the House and the Senate, Senator Lindsey Graham, who of course has been a stalwart defender of Trump, he was quite nuanced in his comments, more or less saying, let's wait and see. And of course, Marco Rubio echoed Trump's remarks that uh, this kind of thing happens in the th- only in third world countries. So... That's clearly a Marco Rubio on that score. Marco Rubio is up for re-election this year, um, and Rubio is doing what he needs to do to show good faith with the party stalwarts and with the GOP base. What I find interesting is uh, Senator McConnell, um, Senator Blunt of Missouri. They're t- they are much more circumspect, and that indicates some wariness, some skepticism, some institutionalism. But at the end of the day, ultimately, I'd say the House is a better barometer of where the party's faithful are at this moment. So what the party's doing then in terms of the House and McCarthy, they're counting on Trump becoming uh, the nominee, which I think is all but inevitable. He's going to probably announce pretty soon. They're counting on him winning, whereas people like Mitch McConnell would like him to go away. So McCarthy, of course, in private apparently is quite different from the public one, although he's he's a shameless coward, obviously. Do you think that McCarthy knows that Trump is a catastrophe? For Kevin McCarthy, Donald Trump isn't a catastrophe. At this point, Kevin McCarthy sees Donald Trump and knows that if he doesn't antagonize Trump, and assuming the GOP holds on and picks up uh, the House, Kevin McCarthy becomes the next Speaker of the House. So right now, McCarthy knows that his fate is tied to Donald Trump's. Um, Mitch McConnell has a different version of that. He went into this campaign season optimistic of the Republicans retaking the Senate. The odds at this point now, however, are about three to two that the Democrats keep control of the Senate. Donald Trump cost the Republicans the state of Georgia, cost them two seats in the state of Georgia, on January 5th, 2021. That is etched into Mitch McConnell's brain. Fast forward, the Republicans now are on the verge of losing Pennsylvania, losing a seat there, not regaining a seat in Georgia, 
possibly losing another seat in Ohio, possibly losing another seat in Wisconsin. By the end of this election, by the end of the midterms, the Republicans could lose as many as three Senate seats. And they go from being in a 50-50 position to being down 53-47. And Mitch McConnell looks at it and goes, thank you, Donald Trump, and not in a good way. Well, again, I'm speaking with Lloyd Green, who's an attorney based in New York, who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Department of Justice and is a contributing writer at The Guardian, where his latest article is Tuesday's primaries offered a glint of hope for Democrats this fall. But the larger question for me, Lloyd, is just trying to figure out what's going on with the GOP and particularly its base and its followers. And as you say, McCarthy and and the House are completely in lockstep with Trump, and Trump basically controls the base. And McConnell in the Senate is different, uh, has a different outlook. But, you know, if he loses, as you said, and they lose seats, he McConnell can blame it on Trump, but he may lo- actually lose the leadership of the Senate. Um, you never know what kind of a backlash there might be. But my it's broader question... Go ahead. Answer that. I would just say that Mitch McConnell's stature and standing within his caucus in the Senate is has less tenuous feel to it than Kevin McCarthy's um, position in the House. Um, Mitch McConnell, in one sense, has done a lot for the Senate GOP. Period. He ended up guiding their legislation uh, to passage. Um, he ended up getting Republican. He ended up steering Supreme Court nominations to through confirmation, and he does a great job at raising money. McCarthy in the House has to deal with more factions. He has to deal with Freedom Caucus. He has to deal with Matt Getz. He has to deal with Marjorie Taylor Greene. He has to deal with Lauren Boebert. And that's a lot of stuff for anyone's plate. It's like herding cats, assuming that the cats are rabid. And so there's a lot less love in the House and also a lot less respect in the House for McCarthy than there is with McConnell. And the other piece is, I would say, McConnell can inspire fear in the membership. He keeps the donor base happy and he takes care of his members. And at the same time, as a result of it, he has a greater capacity to call on his members if he needs a vote, if he needs a favor. Uh, He's in a different position. McCarthy is sitting in the minority. McConnell sits with a great deal of cloud in a 50-50 Senate where the normal rule is you need 60 votes to get passage. Different story. Well, of course, McCarthy tweeted out uh, in response to the FBI raid. Raid's not actually uh, the right word. Uh, They're exercising a uh, search warrant signed by a federal judge. But in response, Kevin McCarthy tweeted out, Attorney General Garland, preserve your documents and clear your calendar in an obvious uh, threat to him. But the broader question I was trying to get to there, Lloyd, is that I don't understand why anybody in America would vote for this Republican Party because it doesn't serve the American people in any meaningful way, as far as I can tell. Yet, and, And let me give you an example. Just recently, as yesterday, the Republicans voted against capping insulin at $35 and then a few days ago, they voted against stopping uh, oil companies from gouging the American people at the pump. What it comes down to is the GOP is a cultural expression, a combination that gives expression to anxieties, but also gives expression to concerns. The issue of immigration remains a key concern for a good chunk of America. 
And for many, the Democratic Party does not address those concerns. You can disagree with that set of priorities, but the GOP is willing to speak to it. Crime is another matter. Democrats are, get hesitant to it. The notion of defund the police was born within the Democratic Party. The Republicans are always against America's cities have a crime problem. And so the Republicans have are in the position to say, we told you so. And that is about as basic an issue as possible. Something just go back to the New York mayoral race. Republican candidate for mayor ran really poorly. And yet there are middle income sections in places like Queens where the Republican candidate for mayor won over 40 percent of the Asian American vote. In that sense, you're getting a signal that says up and coming an up and coming demographic is feeling threatened by the, on the streets of New York. And despite what could be described as all the theatrics that come with the Republican Party, the Republican Party becomes more comfortable in addressing certain concerns than the Democrats are. And that's how people can vote for the Republican Party. So do you think those issues are more powerful in the ballot box, Lloyd, than, for example, lowering prescription drug prices? You're, you have a bout of inflation. It becomes okay, well, we gave you $35 a dose insulin, but we also gave you inflation. Um, gas prices are now finally coming down. But the Democrats are the in party. They can be held accountable for it. And it almost becomes sort of a, a clash of whose cultural issues will prevail this fall. Is it going to be the Republican Party's version of The Handmaid's Tale? That says we will chase, we will criminalize women crossing state lines to get abortions? Or is it the Republicans' narrative which says, hey, the Democrats want open borders and are fine with crime. And I realize it's simplification, that's oversimplification. But there is a lot that each party is linked to that becomes distasteful to significant portions of the population. So how do you see the recent wins of President Biden? He just signed the CHIPS Act and he's going to be signing... Inflation Reduction Act, and there's some other things in the pipeline. I mean, he's he was almost pronounced dead by the punditry writing his political obituary, but he does seem to be making a, something of a turnaround. Do you think any of he, this counts? It, do, it definitely does. The Democrats can now go into the midterms and say, we got stuff done. On top of the infrastructure bill, we ended up getting chips done. We ended up taking care of veterans. We took care of the environment. The Democrats can point to enough legislative accomplishments that say the president is on the ball and we can deliver. We have delivered for you in these first two years. Now, once you get to January 2023, I think you need to assume that the Republicans control the House. That becomes a very different dynamic. Um, and we really don't know where that will go. Something to worry about, not just think about, is the debt ceiling, which will probably come, which will probably hit uh, in the summer of 2023 in about a year from now. And is the GOP willing to go over a cliff just to spite Joe Biden? House for House Republicans may well be willing to do that. Um, and that's just I would describe something that I would describe as a long-term concern. Um, and we'll see where that goes. Uh, when Barack Obama was president, the debt ceiling turned into the a focus for a game of chicken. Um, the Republicans this time in the House may not care enough to... Uh, 
negotiate over it. So we'll see. Well, I think that if they take the House in November, the Republicans will go into full Benghazi mode, won't they, with investigations into Hunter Biden. They've already said that. On top of that, of course, McCarthy just threatened Attorney General Merrick Garland that he was going to start investigating him, and Jim Jordan's demanding that Chris Wray and Garland show up on Friday before the House Judiciary Committee. That's likely to be their focus. So just in closing, Lloyd, is trolling the Democrats, owning the libs, that is that the glue here? Is that sufficient? Is that enough to keep people feeling that they have a functioning government? Well, a functioning government, no, but it's enough to keep the Republican base happy. Um, what you're watching with Kevin McCarthy, is a guy who ended up questioning Trump's boat and feeties a, a, a bunch of years back, realizing that Trump is now the king of the hill, and saying what he needs to say. Um, the usual suspect. I mean, this, you're talking about essentially rounding up all the usual suspects. They'll have hearings. How responsive main justice will be in those hearings, who knows? You get to the Hunter Biden piece. That's something that I'd say Democrats would rather not think about, but is real. You have a real live investigation going on, con- being conducted by the U.S. Attorney for the for Delaware. You could have an indictment, um, and if that happens. You start getting all these collateral questions of, does Joe Biden run for re-election? What do the House Republicans look for in a hearing if there is a present indictment? Because the response at that point becomes, we have an ongoing criminal investigation. Does Hunter Biden excite the Republican base? Absolutely. Um, Is there reason to ask what went on with Hunter Biden? Absolutely. How much traction will it have? We're going to find out. But as long as far as the core of the Republican Party goes, they love knowing on Hunter Biden. And uh, I doubt that's an, that is an issue that is going to go away as far as Donald Trump goes. And the enforcement of the search warrant in Mar-a-Lago, I think we'll find out in the coming weeks. There is paper that surrounds it. When you go into court, that creates a paper trail. What was contained in the search warrant? What 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 is contained in the documents that, that, that in the inventory of documents in the list? Going beyond that, what was set out in the in the affidavit or affidavits that supported the search warrant? And given the fact that all this time elapsed from Trump leaving office and even government knowing about the fact that he had taken documents with him, what was the motivation at this point suddenly for executing a search warrant? My guess is we'll find out in the coming weeks. But until we find out, you're going to have a lot of uncertainty, a lot of speculation, and a lot of resentment. Well, Lloyd Green, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Glad to. Happy to. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Lloyd Green, who's an attorney based in New York, who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Department of Justice from 1990 to 1992. He's a contributing writer at The Guardian, where his latest article is Tuesday's primaries offer a glint of hope for Democrats this fall. We're going to take a restation break and back with an assessment of the fallout from the Alex Jones trial. Well, I'm sitting behind my desk in Washington, D.C. And everyone on cable news is yelling at me. And there's only one place in this whole wide world I want to go. That's down underneath.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anna Merlin, a journalist specializing in politics, crime, religion, subcultures, and women's lives, a senior staff writer at Vice Features. She was previously an investigative reporter for Gizmodo Media Group, a senior reporter at Jezebel, and a staff writer at The Village Voice and The Dallas Observer. And she's the author of Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists, and Their Surprising Rise to Power. And the latest article advice is Alex Jones and Infowars must pay Sandy Hook's parents more than $45 million in punitive damages jury fines. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anna Thanks for Merlin. having me. So, Anna, is there some justice here or, or will there be some justice? I mean, the idea that the mother whose kindergarten son was blown away by an assault rifle and the father apparently witnessed, you know, the hole in the kid's forehead and the rest of his head blown off, that the mother had to confront Alex Jones and say, my son existed. I mean, what kind of a world are we in if we have to reach a point like that? Yeah, you know, both parents testified in this case, and it was really, uh, really moving and also just really difficult to witness, uh, you know, especially Neil Heslin, the father, just how still deeply, deeply, deeply affected he is, obviously, by the death of his son 10 years later. And both parents said that, in part, their sort of healing process following this massacre was affected by people like Alex Jones promoting lies about their their child. So, um, you know, this is the first of three civil trials against Jones and Infowars, and we will we will see what what it looks like in the end and you know how much infowars ends up paying but i think at the very least having to answer for this in a courtroom setting is possibly somewhat helpful for the families but apparently there's a cap on damages in the state of texas so jones's fortune is estimated at somewhere between 135 million and 270 million that in itself is pretty extraordinary to think that you can profit from this kind of garbage. Cool. Yeah, I mean, Jones Jones specifically has made a lot of money um, off of the promotion of conspiracy theories. Um, and, you know, that was a big focus uh, during the trial is trying to determine just how much money Jones and Infowars have uh, and then where it's gone, because we do know uh, from financial records that Jones withdrew $62 million from the company uh, right after he lost the last Sandy Hook case by default back in November or December of 2021. Uh, the cap issue is a little bit complicated because InfoWars parent company Free Speech Systems filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy in the middle of this trial. So it probably actually seems at this point like the final award amount for this case will be determined in bankruptcy court. Well, I thought that one of the the more telling moments in the trial was actually came from the judge who said to Jones, you believe everything you say is true, but it isn't. Your beliefs do not make something true. That is what we're doing here. Just because you claim to think something is true does not make it true. It does not protect you. It is not allowed. You are under oath. That means things need to be true when you say them. Yeah. Don't talk. I mean, that feels like a sort of indictment of post-truth America. It was pretty surreal. And I think the judge acknowledged that it was a little bit ridiculous that she had to say this, that she had to remind Alex Jones to only say things that were true uh, and how much he struggled with that instruction. But yeah, I definitely think it was very striking to have someone uh, have a judge in a courtroom setting articulate that in in such a way. It's also worth noting that this case has been going on for a really long time. You know, it was filed in 2018. Eventually, um, after Jones and Infowars failed to respond to discovery, they lost by default. And now we're here in the damages trial. So this particular judge has been involved in these proceedings for a really long time. And in another case, uh, with a different set of Sandy Hook plaintiffs that's supposed to go to trial in September. So I think her patience is thin at this point, understandably. Well, I mean, in the broader sense, the country itself is afflicted with lies, including the big lie that Trump 
won the election. And that has metastasized into something like an 80% support for the big lie within Trump's GOP. So this goes beyond Alex Jones, doesn't it? This is a an infection that has spread into our body politic. I definitely think an anxiety over our uh, inability to agree on a shared truth is part of the reason why this trial is resonating the way that it is. And of course, Alex Jones has more prominence than he ever has because of his relationship with former President Trump and specifically with Trump advisor Roger Stone. So yeah, I mean, I think people are not just paying attention to this because of Sandy Hook, although that's incredibly important in and of itself. They're also sort of wondering about consequences when you say things that are not true and, you know, affect affect other people's lives very deeply. And again, I'm speaking with Anna Merlin, who's a journalist specializing in politics, crime, religion, subcultures, and women's lives, a senior staff writer at Vice Features. She was previously an investigative reporter for Gizmodo Media Group, a senior reporter at Jezebel and staff writer at The Village Voice and The Dallas Observer. And she's the author of Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists and Their Surprising Rise to Power. And her latest article advice is, Alex Jones and Infowars must pay Sandy Hook parents more than $45 million in punitive damages, jury fines. And you mentioned Alex Jones's ties to Trump and Roger Stone. Now we're learning from the two years worth of texts that Jones's lawyer accidentally sent to the Sandy Hook lawyer. He was um, on the Young Turks saying that there is a picture of a nude picture of Jones's wife that uh, is in the text that was sent to Roger Stone. So Jones himself, didn't he claim to have to be one of the organizers of January the 6th? The ties between him and Stone, who's also around the periphery and appears to be some kind of an organizer as well and was in on the meetings at the Willard Hotel prior to January the 6th, this is an untold story, is it? So do you think these text messages will prove valuable to the January 6th committee? So we know that neither Jones nor Roger Stone were actually there on January 6th, um, but Jones did speak at a rally the night before, and he helped uh, get a donation from the heiress to the public's fortune, fortune that helped pay for you know the official rally portion of January 6th. Obviously, nobody paid for the insurrection specifically, But as soon as it became clear in the Sandy Hook trial that uh, the plaintiff's attorneys had gotten access to these, you know, this data from Alex Jones's phone, the January 6th committee immediately said, you know, we'd like to see that. Because, of course, they are wondering um, if Jones talked to Stone or other people about January 6th or anything around it. So they immediately subpoenaed those records and the attorney, the plaintiff's attorney in the Sandy Hook case who got hold of them, Mark Bankston, confirmed that he had turned them over to the committee. So it is unclear whether there will be anything in those records relating to January 6th, but certainly there is a lot of interest in finding out. So just to return to the broader issue of post-truce America and mm-hmm. why people like Alex Jones flourish and become rich. Is it to do, Anna, with the idea that the press in general, that we all sort of respond to, uh, I guess the, the, the phrase that's used is the bright shining light, but the most outrageous statements? I mean, how do you explain the prominence on media and not just fringe media, but mainstream media as well of Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Jim Jordan, these, you know, outrageous bomb throwers who just say stuff that makes no sense, but it garners headlines. And Jones, of course, he's almost the progenitor of this new media sickness, is he not? Well, hmm, that's interesting, because I kind of see two different things going on here. People like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Jim Jordan, of course, when they say these things, it is newsworthy because they're elected officials. And so, you know, the separate question is, how did we get to a place where we have, for instance, in Marjorie Taylor Greene's case, an elected official who promotes the conspiracy theories and lies that she does? Um, In Jones's case, really what it's about is his use of conspiracy theories to make money. You know, he has this incredibly successful empire and tried to describe himself pretty persistently throughout this first trial as, you know, as a journalist or as a 
talk show host, you know, he kind of changed how he described himself at various points in the trial. Uh, but you know, that's not really where he made his money. He made his money selling products, survival products, you know, supplements. Um, so it's been interesting to see the ways that the sort of lies and conspiracy theories and half truths drew people in, but the products are really what made his fortune. But Jones doesn't care, does he? At the end of the day, there's no shame there, is there? It would certainly be hard to watch this trial and conclude that he has any shame. Um, One thing that he did repeatedly throughout the trial and on air, because he was, of course, broadcasting when he was not in the courtroom, um, was to say, you know, I apologize long ago. I admitted Sandy Hook was real, but that's not really what happened. He's never really made a sincere apology. During the trial, he actually described Neil Heslin, Jesse Lewis's father, one of the plaintiffs, as slow, implied that he was on the autism spectrum, you know, said a series of really kind of ugly things. Um, His apologies certainly have not appeared to be sincere, and his sort of mm, ability to actually understand what he did wrong does not seem very strong. So, Anna Mullen, are you following his post-trial programs? I know know it's a a rotten job, but I guess somebody has to do it. Is he milking his martyrdom and making more money now? Uh, We can't say right now whether or not he's making more money, but he's certainly trying to capitalize on the trial. You know, pretty persistently throughout the trial, uh, Jones and other InfoWars hosts cast it as an attack on free speech, you know, claimed that he was he was in the crosshairs of the globalists and the, you know, um, complicit media establishment because of his dangerous truth telling, you know, whatever. And so uh, he is certainly trying to fundraise off of this. He's certainly asking listeners for donations and, you know, even more urgently shilling his various vitamins and supplements and products. So, yes, certainly they are going to try to capitalize on this because, you know, what else can they do? And what, what's the name of his company, his holding company again? Free Speech Systems is InfoWars' parent company. Free Speech Systems. It is, yes. So, and then, of course, Donald Trump's social media is called Truth Social. So right. these, are, <laughs> these fundamental values like truth and freedom hmm. are being expropriated, it would seem. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, an interesting through line here about the, the words that they use and the meanings they ascribe to those words. And they've been deplatformed, uh, mm-hmm. both Trump and Jones, but is there a way to, you know, recapture the meaning of those words, truth and freedom? I feel like this is the conversation that I end up having the most with people is how do we come back to a shared idea of truth Uh, And what would that even look like? And for me, it's very difficult to say the media landscape and the political landscape are so fractured. Uh, You know, there is so much debate and discussion and argument over even basic things like what we're going to teach children in public schools. I, I can't say I'm very optimistic. And that's not that's not the answer anyone wants. But I just can't say that I really see um, a way back from this. Well, at the moment, this whole issue seems to be quite stark in the response to the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago, where you've got pundits saying this is unprecedented. It's never happened in American history that a former president via a federal judge has been subject to a criminal investigation involving searching his home and breaking into his safe. So that's the sort of news narrative. But the other narrative coming from the Republicans is almost surreal. It's it's like this is the FBI out of control. This is the deep state. So it seems as though it's almost rec- irreconcilable that it's not equal and opposite. It's reality and an alternative reality. Yeah, there's certainly a pretty strikingly consistent sort of narrative from the you know both the far right and the Republican Party about the raid on Mar-a-Lago, which is, you know, that the FBI is out of control, that they're captured by radical leftist forces, and that this was an illegal raid, despite the fact that the FBI director, Christopher Wray, is a Trump appointee. Well, just in closing then, Anna Merlin, even though 
much of Jones's audience, I assume, are are on the, the political right, and that that is where a lot of this conspiracy theories and QAnon seem to attract followers. On the other hand, Alex Jones was one of the producers of a ridiculous film called Loose Change, which sort of brought about the 9-11 truther movement, uh, which he, of course, was also a proponent of. And that became very attractive on the political left. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there is a place where the kind of lunatic fringe on the right and the lunatic fringe on the left meet, is there not? So it's important to note, actually, that Alex Jones only became a producer on Loose Change's sort of final cut. That documentary went through a bunch of different iterations. Um, I've actually had a few conversations with the the guy who wrote and directed it, Dylan Avery, who was, you know, 19 at the time. Um, And he said in an interview a few years ago with an outlet called The Outline that, you know, he has some some regrets about the ways that the narratives in that movie were sort of used and misused and I think is horrified by the places that conspiracy culture has gone. But yes, it is certainly very true that 9-11 conspiracy theories became a meeting place for, you know, the so-called far right and maybe conspiracy theorists on the left. Um, And there is a lot to be said about the ways that conspiracy theories, especially in American life, kind of are fed by Uh, government secrecy, you know, and a sense that there is not a lot of transparency, that things are being hidden from us. And, you know, so even things that are not true are fed by this sort of memories of, you know, the America of the 60s and 70s. And, you know, our our knowledge of, for, for instance, what the FBI was doing back then. So there's this fascinating sort of dynamic between things that are not true, like 9-11 conspiracy theories, and, uh, you know, our historical knowledge of what we have been capable of as a country that I feel like we are still kind of teasing out. Um, And Loose Change and 9-11 conspiracy theories were a fascinating place where all of that kind of met. Well, Anna Merlin, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Anna Merlin, who's a journalist specializing in politics, crime, religion, subcultures, and women's lives, a senior staff writer at Vice Features. She was previously an investigative reporter for Gizmodo Media Group, a senior reporter at Jezebel, and a staff writer at The Village Voice and The Dallas Observer. And she's the author of Republic of Lies, American Conspiracy Theorists and Their Surprising Rise to Power. And her latest article advice is Alex Jones and Infowars Must Pay Sandy Hook Parents More Than $45 million in Punitive damages jury fines this has been background briefing i'm ian masters and i'd like to thank producer graham fitzgibbon and to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit public truth media foundation where your tax-deductible donations large and small keep us broadcasting And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past